Welcome to Stevenson Harwood's Pension Podcast for October 2022. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our Pensions Hub at www.pensionshub.com. I'm Brian Alberston, an associate in the Contentious Trust team, and I have with me Alex Bellis, an associate in the Pensions Advisory team. Today, the topics we will look at include a case which considered whether the government's proposed alignment of RPI with CPIH was lawful, some guidance that has been issued to trustees on the need for exit agreements with their administrators, and the pension regulators' expectations of both trustees and employers when refinancing in the current climate. We will also consider the impact of the mini-budget on pension schemes. Thanks, Bren. As part of the mini-budget, the government has revealed that they will bring forward draft regulations to remove what they refer to as well-designed performance fees from the occupational DC pension charge cap. The reason for this is to ensure savers can benefit from higher potential investment returns while providing funding to help unlock investment into the UK's innovative businesses and assets. The charge cap currently prevents DC plans applying annual charges of more than 0.75% on members' pension pots. It's unclear when these changes might be made and how these so-called well-designed performance fees will be defined. It's also unclear how much this might change the institutional investment landscape, given pension trustees already had a duty to act in their members' best financial interests and costs are only one factor in determining financial value. Uh, on top of this, uh, the government has also said it will replace Solvency 2 regulations with rules tailor-made for the UK. Solvency 2 is an EU directive that came into force on the 1st of January 2016. It sets out regulatory requirements for insurance firms, including those involved in de-risking pension schemes. It also sets out requirements around financial resources, governance and accountability, risk assessment and management, supervision, reporting and public disclosure. Any planned watering down of the requirements could potentially introduce new risks which insurers will need to manage. However, it may also improve buy-in and buy-out pricing and capacity within the market. Thanks, Alex. Our next topic considers a recent case which concerned the proposed alignment of RPI to CPIH from 2030. This change will likely result in RPI being lower by an average 1% per annum. This will lead to a reduction in the value of pension schemes, RPI-linked assets, and a reduction in any liabilities linked to RPI, for example, indexation and revaluation calculated on the basis of RPI. Given that many defined benefit pension schemes are invested in RPI-linked guilds, the proposed change could have a detrimental impact on the funding position of a number of schemes. A large number of pension schemes with CPI-linked liabilities will have RPI-linked assets. For these schemes, their funding position will be negatively affected as the value of their assets will fall, while the level of their liabilities will not change. The trustees of five pension funds brought a judicial review challenge against this decision by the then-Chancellor and the UK Statistics Authority. The High Court rejected the challenges and determined that the decision to align RPI and CPIH was not unlawful. The High Court also held that compensation did not have to be paid. RPI is therefore set to change from February 2030 to be aligned with CPIH. More information can be found in our briefing note on this topic, which is available on the Pensions Hub. Thanks, Bren. 
CASA have also issued some guidance on the exit agreements the trustees should have in place with their administrators. The guidance has been prompted by concerns expressed in relation to the transfer of pensions administration services between administrators. The guidance is intended to support trustees and administrators to plan and manage a smooth handover of administration services when they change scheme administrator. Scheme trustees and administrators should be proactive and check their current administration contract to see if there are um, contractually agreed terms around exit. If the contract doesn't include an exit agreement, trustees should consider putting one in place now, even if an exit is not anticipated yet. Trustees are more likely to secure favourable terms with an incumbent administrator rather than one whose contract is terminated. A template exit agreement can also be found in this PASA guidance. Thanks, Alex. The pensions regulator has set out its expectations of trustees and sponsoring employers when refinancing in the current climate. Employers and trustees should be aware of interest costs and fees. The regulator notes that the employer's ability to make pension payments could be impacted by changes to the costs of debt. Trustees should understand the impact of any such change on the employer covenant. Trustees should also make sure they understand the potential effect of different types of debt when an employer is seeking to switch from one type of debt to another. Lenders often obtain security over assets when lending. In the case of insolvency, such security would normally rank above the trustees' claims. Trustees should therefore ensure they understand the implications of any changes to the provision of security by the employer on their position on an insolvency. Another area trustees should consider is financial covenants. These are usually indicators of a company's financial health. When they are breached, they give debt holders the option to take actions such as call in their debt or modify the terms in other ways. Trustees should be aware that a change in covenant could give power to a lender at the expense of the trustees. Trustees should also be aware of any restrictive covenants in finance finance agreements. Trustees should be mindful of such clauses, which may restrict their ability to agree appropriate funding plans or protections of the scheme. Thanks, Bryn. For our final topic, we will consider a recent pensions ombudsman decision. Uh, This involved Mrs G, who was a member of an occupational pension scheme from October 2018. Up until July 2020... Employee contributions were deducted from her salary and paid into the scheme, together with corresponding employer contributions. However, Mrs G discovered that for the period of July 2020 to May 2021, her employer had deducted pension contributions but had failed to actually pay these into the scheme. Mrs G made a complaint to the pensions ombudsman and an adjudicator provided an opinion to which the employer did not respond. The ombudsman upheld Mrs G's complaint. The ombudsman agreed with the adjudicator's opinion and awarded Mrs G £1,000 for serious distress and inconvenience that she had experienced rather than the 500 that was originally awarded by the adjudicator. This was as a result of the employer exacerbating the situation through its failure to initially respond to the Ombudsman's office during its investigation of the member's complaint. 
The employer was also ordered to pay the total missing contributions to the scheme, as well as compensation for any investment loss that Mrs G had incurred. This complaint highlights that where there is a lack of engagement with the Ombudsman's office, the Ombudsman may increase the award for non-financial injustice to reflect this. Thanks, Alex. That's all from this month's podcast. Further topics in detail can be found in our October snapshot, as well as our briefing on the High Court decision declaring the alignment of RPI to CPIH lawful. Both of these are available on our Pensions Hub at www.pensionshub.com. You can listen to this podcast again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitcher or on the Pensions Hub. Mm-hmm.